Mark 9, 33 to 37. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So every Tuesday and Thursday morning, I um, start out at Indiana University teaching a course. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, he probably teaches a course on theology or philosophy or something like that. I don't. You know what my course is? I teach a course in the history of American sport. Seriously. And I love it. I I work here. I have fun over there. But don't tell the administration that they might not pay me for it, the course. I just have a blast doing it because I'm a history guy and I'm also a sports guy and uh, I really enjoy it. Sometimes I've asked my students questions like, um, who do you think is the greatest basketball player, right? And you can imagine when I ask that question, uh, two of the top candidates that emerge are Michael Jordan and LeBron James, right? Somebody told me after the first service that they thought Bill Russell was the greatest and everybody's got their idea. But one, one thing that's interesting, whenever I have asked on more than one occasion, who's the greatest boxer ever? Everybody says, I knew you thought that too. That's a, everybody says Muhammad Ali. And you know, it's probably true. But one of the reasons you say that is because he knew it. And he said it. There's a story about Muhammad Ali. He was walking through a gymnasium um, on his way to an event. And somebody threw him a basketball. And he grabbed the basketball, and just like this, he just threw it at the basket. And he was across the half-court line. And it went through the hoop with a perfect swish. And the guy turned to him and said, Ali, I didn't know you played basketball. He says, I never did, but if I did, I'd have been the greatest. (laughs) Muhammad Ali knew a lot about being the greatest, but I don't think he knew much about humility. I'm just guessing, based on his demeanor. The passage this morning is really about humility and leadership. There's other things in the passage, and I could focus on a number of those, but I want to focus just on that aspect, humility and servant leadership. As a matter of fact, servant leadership and humility is all over the pages of the Gospels in our New Testament. Jesus has several stories that sound similar to this one. Some of them might be identical, told from a different perspective. Others might be different than the one we just read today. And if you're one of those people who likes to cross-reference, and if my sermon gets boring, you can do that. Um, Mark 20, uh, Matthew 20 is one of the places. Mark 9 is another place. That's today. 
Mark 10 is an additional place. Luke 22 is a place. And John chapter 13. All of those places discuss servant leadership in the context of Jesus' teaching. What I'm going to do for the next few minutes is take all of those passages as one. I'm not going to refer to one of them individually, but I'm going to refer to all the lessons that are brought together by those passages. I shouldn't use the word all. There's more lessons that I'm going to say, but I'm going to use all of those passages to focus on servant leadership. So there's one thing about this passage, actually two, that's pretty remarkable. The first one is this. Imagine what's happening whenever this particular episode occurs. I'll tell you what's happening. Jesus is walking towards the cross. He is steadily walking towards his death. And according to the passage, you know what's happening behind him? The disciples, while Jesus is walking to his death, are arguing, who's going to be the greatest? How ironic is that? Jesus is out there alone, walking by himself. The disciples are in his wake, arguing about greatness. That's the first thing that's ironic about this passage. The second thing that's ironic about this passage is this is chapter 9 in the book of Mark. By the time you get to chapter 10, Mark tells another story that's almost identical to this one. I think he does it on purpose. He puts them this close together. And in Mark chapter 10, the disciples are up to the same thing. This time... It's James and John. They're arguing who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left in the kingdom when Jesus inherits his throne. Have they learned nothing? Do we ever learn it? Servant leadership. I want to break up my thoughts into four parts this morning. The first one is this. Children. Jesus says, be like them. Now, it's interesting to extrapolate what that might mean, right? And we could go too far with it. We could say children are naive, and that probably wouldn't be what Jesus was saying. We could say lots of things about children that Jesus might not have been implying. But here's what we know about children in that generation. Children were never asked for advice. Nobody thought they were wise. As a matter of fact, culturally, they were pretty much ignored. Here's what else we know about children. They had no power at all. I mean, they were more powerless then than children are now. There was no such thing as child protective services in the first century Palestinian region. If your father beat you, you got a beating. Nobody could call and say you were beaten too much and you'd be taken from your family. 
children were virtually powerless. Children were also utterly dependent. Again, primarily on their fathers. Everything they had came from their father. Fourth, children were known then and now as people who trust. Children trust. You know, sometimes we hear horrible stories of their trust gone bad. They trust an adult, and that adult abuses them. Whenever that happens, I don't suppose there are too many other things in the world that create for me so much inner rage as that. And I think it's instinctive, but when I think about it more, I realize the rage comes from a good place. Jesus said, if you harm one of these children, it'd be better for you if a millstone was tied to your neck and you were thrown to the bottom of the sea. Don't touch them. So think about that for a moment. Jesus says, be like the children if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Maybe it means disciples. If you're signing up for leadership in the kingdom of God, you have to know something. Not too many people are going to think you're wise. Very few people in your culture are going to ask for your advice. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, the gospel seems like foolishness to everybody. Are you signing up for that, disciples? If you're signing up to be my disciple, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you know what you're signing up for? You're signing up for powerlessness. There is no court of appeals except God for disciples. And if you want to be my follower, maybe you should learn from the children that you are absolutely and utterly dependent upon me. Learn from the children and be completely dependent upon me. And perhaps learn from the children and understand what trust is. You know, the great thing about that is that it's impossible to be abused by God. When you come to Him as a child, you will not be tormented. You will not be cast aside. He will always be with you, even to the end. And He will protect you from all harm. Oh, it doesn't mean that something bad might not happen to you. But God, who is the God of eternity, protects your soul from all harm and gives you an inheritance that cannot fade if you follow that Father. So Jesus says, the children, 
You want to be a part of the kingdom? Be like them. You know what else he says? Politicians. Don't be like them. Now, of course, the word is leaders or kings of the Gentiles, but I'm going to make it contemporary. The politicians. What we know about the politicians of that era is that, well, they used their power for personal gain. Second thing we know about politicians in, in that day, they routinely thought of themselves more highly than they should have. Third thing we know about politicians of that day, they used power to abuse and oppress others. Fourth thing we know about the politicians of that day, they actually thought people uniformly admired them. Something else. The politicians of that day, they were very much accustomed to people listening to their every words. And unfortunately, the politicians of that day, they could be sold to the highest bidder. Jesus says, don't be like them. You realize how hard it is for me to not name some people in this list? Things haven't changed that much. Don't be like those rulers who use their power to abuse. Those rulers who use their power for personal gain. Don't be like those rulers who can be bought and sold. Don't be like them. If you want to be a servant, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you cannot take that route. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what you should not be. Don't be like them. Third thing that Jesus says in these passages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, be like the servants. Because the servants are the greatest. They're the absolute greatest. And Jesus demonstrated what he meant. He didn't just say it. He demonstrated it. And if you want to read this one, it's in, in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and 14, but especially 13. Jesus, on one occasion, at a meal, said, I, I want to tell you something. You call me Master and Lord. And that's right, I am. I mean, notice what Jesus did. He did not deny reality. He did not try to Produce false humility. He said, you're right. I am your master and your Lord. You know what he could have said? He could have said, you're right. I'm the king of the universe. He could have said, you're right. I am the creator of all things. He could have said, you're right. I'm the sustainer of all things. He could have said, you're right. Your breath comes from me and you can't live without me. He could have said any of those things. He said, you're right. I'm your master and your Lord. But 
as your master and your Lord, I'm going to wash your feet. With the status and the authority that I hold, which is legitimate from God the Father, I will wash your feet. So he demonstrated what it meant to be a servant. You know, according to rabbinic tradition, according to rabbinic tradition, even the lowest servant or slave who was Jewish in a Jewish household could not wash the feet of his master. The only people who were allowed, according to certain rabbinic tradition, to wash the feet of a master was a Gentile. Who, according to Jewish tradition in the first century, was just perhaps a step above a dog. Oh, by the way, that's you, right? We were the only ones who were allowed to wash feet because it was that lowly. There's one uh, interesting story in the rabbinic tradition. I think this one's just really funny. Um, There was a woman who decided that she wanted to express her devotion and her love to her husband. And he came home and she said, I want to wash your feet. And he said, no, you can't do that. You can't go that low. I can't allow you to wash my feet. And his wife said to him, I want to wash your feet because I love you that much. No, he said, you can't do it. You know what the woman did? She took it to rabbinic court. Is that great or what? Okay, you won't let me wash your feet. I'm going to go get a judge's order so I can wash your feet. But you can see, right? You can see the culture that this one was spoken into. And you can see the culture that Jesus spoke into. Can you imagine? Seriously. Can you imagine? Jesus The Son of God, the King of the universe, walking down and washing your feet. Peter, when he heard Jesus said that, he said, oh, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I can't wash your feet, you can't have even a part of me. And Jesus, when Jesus said that, Peter said, well, okay, then just wash it all. My head, my hands, my feet. Do everything. And Jesus said, no. It's only necessary that I wash your feet. The lowest part of you. Because he who has his feet washed has everything washed. Jesus said, I want you to be like the servant. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. There's one final thing um, that's a major point. And it's this. Sacrifice. This is Jesus. It's the only way. Servanthood doesn't just mean helping people and serving people. It means absolute sacrifice. And in one of these passages when Jesus is talking about what it means to be the greatest, He says to His disciples, you remember this phrase, the Son of Man came not into this world to be served, but to serve. And to lay down His life a ransom for many. If you want to know what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, it means sacrifice. That is the only way. You can't do it otherwise. That's what you're signing up for, disciples. He also said, 
in one of these conversations. Can you drink the cup that I'm about ready to drink? And one of his disciples glibly said, Sure, Lord, we can. He didn't have a clue. He later ran like a scared cat from the cross. So if those are the four main points, children, be like them. Politicians, don't be like them. Servants, they're the greatest. Sacrifice, it's the only way. What kind of reflections should we consider about these words? The first one is this. Whenever we talk about this subject, or really just about any subject, there's always a fly in the ointment, right? There always is. And here's at least one fly in the ointment. We could talk about servanthood and humility, and before long, either at the beginning or at the end, we could actually become proud of our own humility, right? That's a fly in the ointment, folks. Because I can't get away from me. And as hard as I try to be good, I'm never good enough. As hard as I try to be humble, I realize that my humility becomes a form of pride for me. Which is why I think C.S. Lewis, to summarize him, said, you know what true humility is? It's not thinking about how to be humble. It's not thinking about yourself at all. I think true servanthood is that way as well. It's not being overly concerned about how you can be a servant and whether or not you can be a better servant and how people could see you as a servant. You're going the wrong direction. True servanthood is thinking of others. Period. Second thing to reflect on uh, is this. Our ability to really understand and invest in servanthood is grounded in our relationship with God. I mean, even in the life of Jesus, you know why Jesus could stoop down and do the lowest? demeaning task of all because he knew who he was. He was a co-creator of the universe. He did not need accolades. He did not need praise. He did not need his self-esteem to be lifted up. Why? Because he had this one perfect relationship with God the Father and he understood who he was and how loved by the Father he was. And the same is true for us, my friends. The path to true servanthood is really to understand that you are chosen by God. To understand that God loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. To understand that God Himself is your Heavenly Father. It will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And that God loves you more than the most perfect earthly father ever could. And when you understand that to the depths of your being, then maybe, then you can serve. Because you don't need the accolades and you don't need the praise. You have your praise from God Himself. The third thing um, to reflect on when we think of these passages is that in serving others, we actually are served. There's a very famous theologian who is now uh, gone, 
Um, he was uh, world-renowned for a lot of books, one of which probably one of the most famous books was A Wounded Healer. Some of you know him as Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen had an incredible career as a theologian. As a matter of fact, he taught at Notre Dame University and then later at Harvard and then also at Yale. And then he turned away from all of them. The later part of his life, instead of teaching at prestigious universities, he decided he would devote himself to serving the mentally handicapped. And he worked for an organization called The Ark. Henry now, in speaking of The Ark, said this, The Ark exists not to help mentally handicapped people get normal, but to help them share their spiritual gifts with the world. The poor in spirit, he says, are given to us for our conversion. I hope that kind of jars your evangelical sensibilities, and I'm going to read it again. The poor in spirit are given to us for our conversion. In their poverty, the mentally handicapped reveal God to us and hold us close to the gospel. That is beautiful. Henry Nouwen said the greatest gift in this relationship is the one I receive from them. That's servant leadership. The final uh, point of reflection is, is actually to remember another passage of Scripture or two. Remember the, the, the penultimate passage of Scripture concerning servanthood is, is found in Philippians chapter 2. When Paul says, I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I want you to think of yourself with sober judgment. I want you to imitate Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not think equality was something to be held on to or grasped, but emptied himself and made himself of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, says Paul, is servant leadership. That's the essence of the kingdom of God. That's a wonderful epistle, by the way. The epistle of Philippians, often called the epistle of joy. Because by the time Paul gets to the end in Philippians chapter 4, he talks about rejoicing. Remember that passage? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men, for the Lord is at near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which overarches or transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's just one phrase I want to lift from that passage. It seems like it links with Philippians 2. Paul says, rejoice all the time. When? Always, Paul. Under what circumstances? All of them. Rejoice constantly. And as you rejoice in all circumstances, let your gentleness be evident to all. Because the Lord is near. What does that phrase mean? Well, let's use a couple other translations to ferret out the meaning. The Living Bible puts it this way. Let everyone see that you are unselfish and considerate in all you do. Rejoice under every circumstance, even when you're not getting what you think you deserve. Rejoice. Let everyone say you're unselfish and considerate. In all you do. When you, in your mind, unjustly are put to the back of the line when you're being treated less than you deserve rejoice and let everybody see that you're unselfish and consider it all you do I, is there anybody here for whom that doesn't cut deep? Like maybe last week? I remember one last week. I'm not even going to tell you the details. I'm too embarrassed. I know what I didn't do. I didn't do this. I didn't demonstrate unselfishness. thought I deserved better. Here's another translation of that phrase by a man called Kenneth Wiest. He says, let your sweet reasonableness, your forbearance, your being satisfied with less than you are due be evident to all people. In other words, no matter what the circumstances, be long-suffering and kind and gracious. For me, there's a good analogy in life with my children. Especially when they were little. You know what happens as a parent, right? You're deferential to those little children. Why are you deferential to them? Why do you let them eat first? Why do you put your needs ahead of their, their needs ahead of yours? Because you know you're going to be okay. Your, your husband or your wife, they're going to take care of your needs. You know you're going to be okay because God's going to supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And because you know that, you're deferential to little children who don't yet have that understanding and need to learn patience, but you, you serve them first. 
That's mature servant leadership, my friends. When you're a parent with your children, you are basically deferential to them because you know you've got nothing to worry about. Even though at times, more than anything else, you want to drop everything you're doing and tend to yourself. You don't. Because you know God's going to supply your needs. I read a story a number of years ago in an an epic leadership book by Robert Greenleaf. In that book, he borrows a story that came from another place, from Herman Hesse. It was a, a story entitled The Journey East. And here's the story. A a man who knew what it meant to go on long expeditions um, and to explore had decided he was going to chart a particular course east, as you might expect, on an expedition. And he got a huge team together. They had all the supplies. They had what they needed. They had the know-how of how to survive and where to go and how long they could go, all those things. And they started off on this expedition and everything seemed to be going along pretty well. But there was, there was this one man who was a part of the group. His name was Leo. And Leo was really unpretentious, and you almost would miss him. And what Leo did is he did everything nobody else wanted to do. He did all the menial tasks. And while he did them, he often sang. Just joyful Leo, doing his work and other people's too. And one day, someone noticed Leo was gone. He just disappeared, as if he vanished into thin air. And they started looking for Leo, and he wasn't anywhere. And one wondered, you know, I I guess it's all right. Leo decided to move on. I, we we really don't need him. It's not a big name. He doesn't know the same thing as the captain of the expedition. But before long, with Leo's absence, things began to fall apart. People on the trip started arguing with themselves. Some people didn't want to do the task they were assigned. Before it was all over, the leader of the expedition called it off. It was an absolute failure. It was over. A long time later, the leader of the expedition did his best to try to find out what happened to this mysterious man, Leo. He looked for him far and wide, and, and this is a fiction. It's a mythology, but it's wonderful. He looked for Leo far and wide, and finally, after a long period of time, he found him. And he said, Leo, it's so good to, to see you. Then he realized who Leo was. He was a leader of a religious organization that had thousands of followers. And the basic premise was how to be a servant to your fellow men. When Leo wasn't there, it came apart. You know, when I hear that story again, You know what first comes to mind? 
you. It's a bunch of Leos sitting out there this morning. You invest in our church. Some of you are not that engaged, but others of you are deeply engaged. And you don't ask for anything. You don't ask for praise. You don't ask for money. You give. You quietly do the work of the ministry. What I want to say is thank you. Thank you for being the church. Thank you for being Leo. You do that for your families too. And I hope you do that in your work environment. Thank you. The second thing I think of, though, is that often, if any of us is self-critical, we realize we're not always like that. And we should be more like that. So what do we do? First, we recognize that all our needs are given to us by God. He supplies them all so we can serve others. And then, I want to suggest that you just do something. Do something out of the ordinary. To be a servant. Here's just a flurry of possible suggestions. This week, write a letter to somebody who you know needs it. Or this week at at work or somewhere else, guard the reputation of another. You've seen people who have been slammed, haven't you? You know they don't deserve it. Guard the reputation. Or maybe something just as simple as just send a gift to somebody. Or offer to take care of the kids. Maybe your husband or a wife, or maybe you see a couple. They know you, you know them, they trust you. Next weekend is yours. Let us have the kids. Maybe prepare a meal. Or address an injustice. There's a lot of them to be found. In, in doing all those things, every one of them, Try this. When you do something, do something good without getting caught. Do something when nobody knows. It'll be a gift. The final point, how about if we just make a pattern of life this way? How about if we just change right now? And start serving others. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the example of Jesus Christ. In all your teachings, you do more than tell us. You show us. In all your teachings, you do more than illustrate righteousness. By pointing out good people, you become righteousness for us. And we thank you for that. And we pray that this week as we leave this place, you will reinvigorate us to serve and give us an imagination to know how to serve and help us to serve in such a way that we don't think about ourselves and our service.
and how good it is, but we think about the other that we serve. Because we know that you came to to serve, not to be served. And to give your life a ransom for many. We're so thankful that we're part of the many. Help us to reproduce that. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.